0: To come by pointing to jesus and so we said that when we are asked that question what's your story and that's a question that we get what's your story and sometimes we're 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 inclined to respond with well you know i'm a i'm a pastor or i'm an accountant or i'm a teacher sometimes we're inclined to to say you know i support a good football team or i support unc you know Sorry, Jeff, I had to poke. So sometimes we answer with all of these questions about what's our story that isn't what our story is, right? As believers, when we're asked the question, what's our story, we should point to Jesus. The second week, we, um, we looked at this, this, this statement that Jesus has when he says that he is the bread of life. And that he is the thing upon which we can feed and be sustained. That unlike worldly bread that we eat and consume and eventually it passes through us and away and we become hungry again when we when we eat on Jesus, we are sustained. Then we looked at the story of Lazarus and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and Jesus' proclamation that he is the resurrection and the life, a proclamation that we're going to be returning to today. And then last week we looked at this this idea of abiding, of resting, of remaining in Jesus. So this week we're looking at the very best news in the world. The very best news in the world, which is the resurrection. As you can see from the slide, we are going to be um, once more in the book of John. We're going to be in the 20th chapter. We're actually going to look at the entirety of the chapter. And so I know that it's a little long, um, but I would encourage you to stay with me. So if you're willing and able, please stand as we read God's word together. I recognize that it's long. If you at some point need to sit, um, do so. At some point, if I need to sit, I will do so. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw the stone that had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon, Peter, and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been made on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must, be ra- that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so that the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the holy spirit If you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they are retained but thomas Called twin one of the twelve was not with them when jesus came So the other disciples were telling him we've seen the lord But he said to them if I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands Put my finger into the marks of the nails put my hand into his side. I will never believe a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas, who was with them, even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.'" And then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe.'" Thomas responded to him, "'My Lord and my God.'" Jesus said, "'Because you have seen me, you have believed.'" Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we enter into this time of the study of your word, as we enter into this time of reflecting on and, and thinking about and studying your resurrection, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. So we're going to start today, not by diving into this passage, but by visiting very briefly Paul in 1 Corinthians. In in 1 Corinthians 15, the third and fourth verse, Paul says this, "...for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." And then a little later in verse fifteen, and verse 11, chapter 15 and verse 11, Paul says this, Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, so you have believed. See, Paul is, is telling the Corinthians, telling us something that's really important. This, this event that we see in John chapter 20, this event that we, that we call the resurrection of, of Christ, This is is the point. And so, like Paul, we don't necessarily preach John 20 every week, but every week we try and make it a point to exalt the crucified and risen Christ. See, all of Scripture, all of history, either points forward to or back to Christ. We're... um, we're getting ready to, to, to paint the nursery. And so as we were getting ready to do that, I decided that um, the, all of the hinges have been painted over, and there are these really old, really pretty brass hinges, and so I, I want to clean them up. But in order to clean them up, I've got to get them off the, the door, and they've all been painted over. So I had a very frustrating time yesterday trying to scrape paint off of screws so that I could get my screwdriver in and pull it off. But, but you know, when, when you untake the hinge off, right, the door doesn't work because the door only works because it's what connects the, the door to the wall is that hinge. And everything pivots around that. And, and you can take these solid wooden doors that we have in our house, these old, probably been in the house since it was built almost 100 years ago, these solid wood doors that are pretty heavy, and you attach them to just two fairly small pieces of brass, and you can can move because that hinge will hold that weight and make it easy to open and shut that door. We sometimes refer to Christ as the hinge of history. Because he is what connects everything together. He's what makes everything work. He's what causes us to pivot. The door would be worthless, useless without the hinge. The door frame wouldn't be very useful without the hinge. The hinge is important. Jesus is the hinge of history. And so all of Scripture points either to him or back to him, forward to him or back to him. All of history either points forward to him or back to him. If you want to understand life, the universe, and everything, you don't need to build a big supercomputer that's going to give you an answer of 42. You need to look to Christ. You need to look to Christ. And so what we have in this passage in John is his description of the early Christians, of the early church, and when I say early, I mean like a day-old church, discovering the resurrection. And it's through their discovery of the resurrection that we find out that the gospel is good news, that the gospel is the best news. And so as we, look, as we work through this today, we're going to be working, breaking it up into four parts. There's the first part, which is the first ten verses, which is the empty tomb. And then we have this interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. That's going to be the second part. The third part is going to be the interaction between Jesus and the disciples that first time. And then the last part is that interaction between uh, Jesus and Thomas a week later. And so we move into the first part, to the empty tomb, and we find that the empty tomb is the hope for the world. The hope for the world. We're told that it's the first day of the week. Notice John doesn't say it was the third day after Jesus's death. Right? That's what Jesus said that on the 3rd day he was going to rise. You would think that he would say on the 3rd day they went to the tomb, but John doesn't say that. He says on the 1st day of the week because something new is happening. Something new is happening. See, on the on the Sabbath day, on that 7th day of the week, Jesus rested. In the tomb. But on the first day of the week, as something new was being born, we experience the resurrection. And this is why we worship as Christians, we worship on the first day of the week and not the seventh. There are some some, uh, Christian denominations and, and sects that worship on the seventh day. Most famously probably are the seventh day Adventists. But did you know there is also Seventh-day Baptists? Seventh-day Baptists, they worship on, they're Sabbatarians, they worship on Saturday and not on Sunday. But, But the church has traditionally worshiped on the first day of the week because every time we gather for worship, it is a remembrance and a celebration of that first resurrection day. You know, there are a lot of people out there today who will say something along, the, along these lines. I can't believe in the resurrection because things like that don't happen. Right. That's the point. Things like this doesn't happen. They doesn't, it doesn't happen. People, people don't willy-nilly come back from the grave. Despite what zombie movies might have you believe, there aren't a bunch of reanimated people wandering around the earth. It's a big deal, the resurrection. See, it's, it is. It's this dawning of this new creation. It's the beginning of this, of this new thing. It's the beginning of the last days. You know, we often say, you know, you often hear people say, oh, we're living in the last days. Correct. We've been living in the last days since that first Easter Sunday morning. Something new, something radical has happened. And it starts on the first day of the week. And so Mary Mary comes uh, to the tomb. And and if we look in verse 2, we'll see that that Mary does not expect the resurrection. The disciples don't expect the resurrection, right? Like, she comes running back to them, and she goes, they've taken his body. She doesn't come back and say, hey, guess what? He did what he said he was going to do. She's not expecting the resurrection. We know that what Mary is doing is she's going to the the tomb to prepare his body because they hadn't been able to because of the Sabbath. And so she's taking with her all of these expensive ointments and spices and these things they used to prepare the body, expensive stuff, stuff that she would not have brought, stuff that she would not have taken with her, stuff that she wouldn't have bought in the first place if she was expecting the resurrection. So she's not expecting the resurrection. The disciples aren't either. What happens? Mary comes back and she says, Hey, look, Jesus' body isn't there. And the first thing that happens is that Peter and John run to the tomb. Okay, can we just, can we acknowledge the fact that John is the is one of the apostles who who outsurvives all of the others? He's writing his gospel, we, we think, probably writing his gospel last. Most of that first generation has passed away. And John is around, and so he's the one who gets to write the story and says that he is the disciple that Jesus most loved. He also tells this version of the story that, that he beat Peter to the tomb. I'm going to take his word for it, but I think it's a, just a little coincidental that the guy writing the story is the one that Jesus loves the most and the one who's the fastest. But, but what do they do? They run. They run to the tomb, and they look in, and, and they don't say, oh my goodness, he did exactly what he was said he was going to do. He's raised himself from the dead. He lives. No, they sit there, and they go, duh, the tomb is empty. What happened? John tells us, he said, they didn't understand the Scripture. See, believe in resurrection, this was not a common belief. The Greek and the Romans certainly didn't believe in it. Some Jews, not all, some Jews believed in a resurrection that would happen sort of at the end of time, the final resurrection, the bodily resurrection in the, at the end of days, but, but none of them believed that something like the resurrection of Jesus was something that happened all the time. You know, we look back and we think, oh, they were so primitive, they probably all thought that this stuff happened all the time. No, they didn't. They didn't think that happened all of the time. And in fact, we know that in order to believe in the resurrection, this first generation of the church had to make great personal sacrifices. At the very least, most of them would have been disowned and kicked out of their own families. They would have lost that support system that was so important in the first century. And of course we know that many of them, it required of them the great personal sacrifice of of martyrdom. And you'll never be able to convince me that a man allows himself to be crucified or stoned to death or beheaded or died in the myriad of ways that the first generation of Christians were martyred if they don't believe the resurrection. You don't die for a lie. And so John and Peter run to the tomb. There are two of them. Jewish law requires there to be two witnesses to an event. So two men run to the tomb. John beats Peter in speed But at least he's humble enough to acknowledge that he doesn't beat Peter in boldness. I don't think anybody beats Peter in boldness. John runs there, and he's sort of sitting outside going, Man, what's going on in there? I can't can't see. It doesn't look like he's in there. And Peter runs up, and good old Peter, man, he just walks straight on in. And what do they see? They see the, the burial cloths. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about Lazarus, right, we talked about how Lazarus was bound up. We talked about the burial clothes then. So they see these burial clothes. So what does this mean? This means the body hasn't been stolen. Because if you're going to steal a body, you don't unwrap it and fold everything up and then take just the body, right? If for no other reason than arms and legs and everything go akimbo, you want everything contained, so you leave it wrapped up and you take it all with you. We also get this this little bit, the, 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 the cloth that had wrapped his face was, was folded up and placed separately. These, brothers and sisters, these are vivid details. These are vivid details, but they're not the sort of thing that someone would make up. It bears the witness of accurate eyewitness testimony. And then, so what happens? So John and and Peter decide that they, they they're trying to figure this out. And we're we're told again, we're told that they didn't understand the scriptures, and so they're left trying to piece all of this together. This is the this is sort of the the big E on the eye chart, right? You, you've been recently to get your eyes your eyes checked. And you know, it's, it's almost always, that first letter is a really big E. And if you can't see that E, you're in trouble, right? Some of us, when we don't have our glasses on, we can't see that big E. That's the that's the base. That's where we start. This is the this is the the big E. Now, in order to get to twenty-twenty vision, right, you can't stop with that big E. You've got to move down through the rows until you get smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's like that with our faith. We don't stop at the big E. To get to get a twenty twenty faith, we we have to keep moving down. But you have to start with that big E. The, The resurrection is not a footnote. It's, it's not the intro to our faith. It's not an appetizer to our faith. It is the big ribeye that's the entree. Now, to have the, the complete meal, right, you need, you need the salad, and you need the bang-bang shrimp, and you need, the, and you need the, the, the baked potato and the dessert. Like, to have the full meal, you've got to have the other stuff. But, but if you don't have if you have all of that other stuff and you don't have the steak— It's not a really good steak dinner, is it? It's an essential. It's the foundation. Without the resurrection, our faith is nothing. We live in a day in which people struggle with both fear and of death and meaninglessness of life, people are, are scared of death, aren't they? I feel like the last ten or eleven months have really shown us the deep fear that resides in our culture of death. but there is also this 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 fear of meaninglessness in life that life is meaningless that there's no that there's no point. It's just all a bunch of nihilism. The, the, the life has no point. But here's, here's the fact. Resurrection solves both of these problems. That's why it's the best news. Because it answers the questions of life now, and it answers the questions of life Beyond the grave, see, you don't have to fear death because Christ has risen. Or let's let's put it let's put it in the words from the the song that we just sung. You don't have to fear death because He lives. You don't. You can have a new life because He lives. Your life does matter because he lives. The resurrection not only enables us to have access to eternal life, but it shows us that our life, our being, our existence has meaning. So we move into the second part of the story, this This interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. See, John and Peter have have wandered off to, to try and figure it all out. And Mary does what often happens when the men wander off to try and figure it out. Mary stays and says, you know, maybe if I just stay here for a minute, I'll figure out what's going on. And we find in this interaction between Jesus and Mary, grace for the broken. You know, Mary Magdalene becomes the first person to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Mary Magdalene becomes the first person to proclaim the good news. We have four gospels and there are different details that are in each gospel. But one of the things that we know is that we know for a fact that there is no doubt that Mary Magdalene was the first person to proclaim the resurrection because all four Gospels have it that way. The scholar J.P. Lang says this, that the first Easter message addressed by Christ to the apostolic circle itself was discharged by a woman, a female disciple who, without a doubt, was formerly a great sinner. We see here that Mary is the recipient of three particular graces. She sees angels. And in Scripture, that is a sign of God's grace. If you 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 are given, if you are gifted angels, the sight of angels, that is a demonstration of God's grace to you. She also is the first to see the risen Christ, the risen Lord. She sees those angels and she turns around and he's right there. And she also has this grace of being the first to proclaim his resurrection. But I want to be clear. If the disciples had made up this story, if the disciples had sat down, you know, a week or two after the resurrection, after the crucifixion and had said, you know, um, it's a really bad thing that Jesus was crucified and You know, so let's make up a bunch of stories so that we can spend our lives wandering all over the world, destitute, dirt poor, and die at the hands of the Roman Empire. Let's make up something. And if they had made it up, they would not have made up this story. They would not have made up Mary being the one who comes to the tomb. They wouldn't even have included her. And why? Well, first of all, and ladies, I'm just being honest, they would not have included her because she was a woman. Women were not allowed, in the, according to the Mishnah, according to the, the extended Jewish writings, women are not allowed to give testimony in court. Women are not viewed as reliable witnesses. At the time, not by me. want to be clear. I see the daggers coming my way already. But she's, she's, she's a woman. And in fact, Celsus, who is a, a Greek pagan Writer and philosopher in the second century, he's writing against the church and he's writing against the resurrection. And, and he's, he's trying to push back on this because, because the gospel is changing everything and he doesn't like it. He's a grumpy Greek. And one of the things that he states is he says that he's convinced that none of it is true because, quote, it's based on the testimony of a woman. And this is a quote. And we all know that women are hysterical. He calls it women's gossip. Women are, are marginalized. If you're going to make up a story, the first person that you have witness an event is not going to be a woman. If you were making up a story in the first century. Just not. It's not It's not believable. And the second thing that we know about Mary is we know that she was earlier that she was demon possessed. In fact, Luke tells us that she had been possessed by seven demons. So, if you're going to make up a story, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to say that the the the, the, the person. That the central witness in the story is a woman. It's an even worse idea to make your central witness in your story someone who everybody knows had been demon possessed. You're just not going to make this story up. But each one of the Gospels makes it clear that Mary was the first witness to the resurrection. There's only one reason to include Mary Magdalene. And that's because she was there. And because the story is true. And so in in this experience that Mary has, where, where she is the first... And then not only is she the first, but then she becomes so instrumental in the telling of the story and and in a way becomes instrumental in the ability to verify the story. We see this outpouring of grace for the broken and for the enslaved. If you've been enslaved to demons. See, Jesus offers new life. Jesus offers us a new life. It's not self-help or self-improvement. Maybe maybe you have a past. Maybe you have a past of abuse. Uh, Physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, spousal abuse. Maybe you have a a past history of abuse. Maybe you you have a a past history of, of, of enslavement to addiction or to sinful relationships, or or maybe you are one of those people who has experienced enslavement in the form of demon possession. But here's the thing. There's hope for change. Mary was abused and enslaved, and she becomes the herald of the risen Lord. Grace the Savior's grace can change and can bring forth something new. So Jesus offers you a new life. Jesus also offers you a new family. You know, before this, he's, talked, he's referred to these people that are around him. He's called them servants. He's called them disciples. He's even called them friends. But for the first time, we see him here calling them family. Family. He calls us family even as he's ascending to the throne. He says, my father is your father, and my God is is your God. He's calling us family even as we fail him. Jesus calls those that have abandoned him family. Family. In in Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, verse 12. I don't think I have a I don't think we have a slide for this, but in Hebrews 2, 12. Well, 2.11 it says, That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We have a new Family. You know, one of the reasons that we see so many miserable Christians, and can we just acknowledge that we see a lot of miserable Christians? One of the reasons that we see a lot of miserable Christians is because they're trying to live out their faith alone, they're trying to do it on their, on their own. That wasn't the design. Christianity is, is familial, it's not just personal. At one time, we had, we had walked so far away from this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus that we decided that we needed to emphasize that again. And that was a good thing. We needed to do that. We needed that corrective. The problem is now we've gone so far in the other direction that we think that it's just a personal relationship and that we don't need the family of Christ in our lives to help us grow. We're not supposed to do it on our own. We're supposed to do it with this new family that we enter into when we become a new person, a new creation. So Jesus has this encounter with Mary, and then that evening he has in this encounter with the disciples. And in this, in verses nineteen through twenty-three, we see we see peace for the fearful. We're told that that they're afraid; they've locked the doors because they are afraid. They've run from Jesus. They've turned their back on him while he's on the cross because of fear. Fear has ruled them. And so what happens? Jesus enters this room. He comes into this room. Despite the door being locked, he enters this room. And what is the first thing he says to them? Peace be with you. We're told that the disciples are glad that they, that they rejoice because that's what grace does. That's what peace does. It makes you want to rejoice. In the middle of their fear, in the middle of their, their sorrow, in the middle of their confusion, can you imagine you are one of the other disciples and Mary has come in and then Peter and John come in and they tell you this crazy outlandish story that the tomb is empty. And then Mary comes back and she says, hey guys, not only is the tomb empty, I've also seen the Lord. And so, with all of that having happened, knowing that the authorities are looking for you, to punish you, you are gathered in a locked room and this thing that's not supposed to happen, happens. And this This man that you know was killed just a few days ago shows up. The first thing he says to you is, peace be with you. And scripture tells us that the disciples rejoiced. I don't know about you. I have an idea that I would have been more inclined to go, ah! And just have my brain melt. Because it's too much. But that's what grace does. That's what peace does, is it encourages, it builds, it sustains gladness and rejoicing. You know, we all know that, that, that abomination, that they will know us by our love. I think one of the other things that we should say, and this isn't in Scripture, but I think it's, I, but I still think it's biblical. I think it's scriptural. I think it's based in Scripture. Is they should be able to know us by our joy. And yet, a lot of us go around like sour pusses all the time. We don't demonstrate a lot of joy, a lot of gladness in our lives. What does Jesus do with these disciples? Does he come in and does he say, how dare you? You turned your back on me. You abandoned me. I'm done with you. I'm going to go find another group of people. He takes them off the team, right? No. He hands out captain's patches to everybody so they can put them on their robes because they're the captain of the team now. He puts them in charge. He says that they're going to be the ones that leads the mission. They're going to be the ones that are going out, doing everything. Because he offers peace for the fearful. Now one of the disciples, one of the, the 12, now 11, right, because Judas has, has died. Judas has killed himself. So one of the 11 is not present. He is not present in the middle of all this. And this is, this is Thomas. Thomas. I think the story of Thomas and this is the fourth part is that is that, that, that Jesus brings truth for the for the skeptic. I think the story of Thomas is is part of this part of the story of Thomas it should be a lesson for us don't skip church. Cuz Thomas skipped church and Jesus showed up. Don't skip church, Jesus might show up. You know, we, we, what do we call Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas, which really isn't fair. Like, scripture calls him the twin. We should at least call him the twin. We should at least give him his scriptural name, but we call him Doubting Thomas. He's sort of connected to doubt. He's sort of the perpetual skeptic, which I think actually in today's world should tell us something. Because we've got a lot of skeptics today. There's a lot of doubt today. There, there are four kinds of doubt that I want to run through real quick. There's moral doubt. So, so this, is, this is doubt that's grounded in one's uh, moral preferences and desires. You know, there's some people, they, they don't want to interfere with choices like um, uh, sexual preferences. Or, or So they start doubting everything theologically you know or or they don't want to they don't want to say they don't want to say oh um, that that person over there that i know that's another religion they're a really good person and they don't want to they don't want to own up to the fact that without christ that that person isn't going to be saved and so they so they start doubting they start doubting everything but what it's really driven by is their personal moral desires They're placing their morality ahead of that of 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 God. And we see see a lot of that today. We see a lot of this moral doubt. There's also gradual doubt. And gradual doubt is that doubt that stems from a thousand small bad choices over time. So so a spouse begins to, to drift away from God slowly, gradually, and one day they find themselves in bed with an individual who is not their spouse. They're lonely, they're disconnected, and so they say, well, I never believed any of that rubbish anyway. It comes over time. It comes through a slow drift. It's destructive and satanic. Then there's gullible doubt. There's gullible doubt. And and this can come if, if one's faith remains immature then it can, this is a doubt that can stem from being unable to answer people's objections and questions. You see this a lot in young people who, who leave. They leave the confines of their home, they leave the confines of their home community, their home church, and they go to college, or they go out into the world, and for the first time, they're sort of really being questioned and because they haven't been instructed well, because they haven't been catechized well, because they don't know how to answer these questions, they don't have a mature and robust understanding of their faith, their, their, Ephesians 4 talks about it as being tossed to and fro on the waves of doctrine. And so they begin to doubt. Well, that guy who lives down the hall who's an atheist, he seems to have it all together because he watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And then, and then there's the doubt of Thomas. And Thomas's doubt doesn't fall into any of these other categories. Thomas's doubt falls into this fourth category, which I think is the category that, that probably is the most prevalent. And it, it's, it's the doubt, it's sorrowful doubt. It was doubt that was brought about because of massive religious disappointment. And I'm going to bet that you've experienced this. Maybe you've experienced this personally or you've experienced this seeing this in the life of somebody else. Something doesn't happen the way they think it should. Their child dies. Their spouse dies. They see uh, somebody who's immoral get promotion after promotion while they struggle. it's doubt that's rooted sort of in this question right on of evil why do these bad things keep happening if god is good it's they're they're sorrowful see thomas wasn't a philosophical materialist and the only thing that mattered was matter he's a jew he believes in miracles he's seen miracles but his hopes were crushed when that stone rolled In front of the tomb. He felt as though he had gotten snookered. Deceived. And so what does Thomas do? When they come to him, they say, hey man, guess what? You are never going to believe it. He's like, you're right. I'm never going to believe it. I'm never going to believe it. Until I get to put my fingers in his hands. Put my hand in his side. Now I want you to note that Thomas is only asking for what they had already been given. And he says, until I get to have that experience, you're right. I'm not going to believe it. See, Thomas is deciding that he's going to make his own decision. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Remember that, that thing when you, were, when you were a kid and your mom said, well, if everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you? Hopefully you weren't as much a big a smart aleck as I was because my response was, well, mother, my friends are mature and thoughtful, so if they jumped off a bridge, there must be a reason for it. How I survived to adulthood, I do not understand. That's what Thomas is saying. He's like, just because the other ten of you say this happened, I'm not going to go along. You can vote yes, but I'm withholding my judgment until I see it with my own eyes and then imagine the intervening time now we don't know when thomas came back with the other disciples we don't know if it was five minutes after jesus had left the upper room if it was the next day you know i really hate to think that it was one of those things where they're like hey thomas no one recognizes you as well as the rest of us so why don't you go make the starbucks run and he comes back you know with the drink order and then all of a sudden they're telling him that jesus was there we don't know. But it, it's, it's going to have been the better part of a week that Thomas is having to listen to his friends, the people that he has thrown his lot in with, that if they get arrested, he's getting arrested. There is ride-or-die crew, and he's having to listen to them tell them that they've seen Jesus for a week. Man, I, I would not want to have been in his position. And then, a week later... On Sunday night again, Thomas says, I'm not missing church this time. Y'all can go get your own Starbucks. He stays. And Jesus appears. And just like the first time, Jesus says, peace be with you. And Thomas falls on his knees and he proclaims, my Lord and my God. Jesus offers his hands the same thing that he had done with the disciples. And Thomas says, I don't need that my Lord and my God. That is the confession that we must make if we want to enter into the Christian life. That is the daily confession of every believer's life, my Lord and my God. Don't distance yourself from Jesus, but every day bow down and cry out, my Lord and my God, because Jesus includes us. Did you catch that? Right here, as Jesus is talking to Thomas, he's talking about you. Because he says, blessed are you who have seen and believed, but blessed more are those who have not seen, who will not see, and who will believe. That's about you. Did you know that you were in Scripture? That's about you. That's about me. He's Jesus includes us. John, John wraps up. Just as he said, just as, as Jesus has, says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, John, John takes this moment and he sort of steps out of the story to tell us why he wrote all this down. He's written it down so that we might believe. He's written it down so that we might have access of these witnesses. He's written it down because we haven't seen Jesus like he has and he wants us to, wants to tell us about it. John's written it down because he has been the recipient of this best of all possible news. And he wants to tell us about it. See, the risen Christ meets each of these people in their condition and it transformed them. He meets Mary Magdalene and he brings her from from demon enslaved to evangelist. He, He meets the disciples and he brings them from fear to fearlessness. And he meets Thomas. He brings Thomas from skepticism being a devoted missionary, Thomas will eventually go as far east as India. There are are Christian communities in India to this day that were originally evangelized by Thomas. He can do that for them. He can do that for us. But we have to confess my Lord and my God. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 309, Lord, I'm Coming Home, 309.